Hey guys, welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful study of the Scriptures that we hope will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others. I'm Zach, and it is my wife Krista this week that is chewing on the cough drops and uh, has discovered Ricola and is singing its praises. Well... I do feel s- kind of bad. It's like we're back to we've, cough drop we've season. We've come full cir- circle. Sorry. You made fun Sorry of me at the beginning of the season for my cough drop I addiction. Know. And so excuse our plug noses. and Well, you gave me the sickness anyway. So here we go again. We'll be talking about cough drop. So if anyone <laughs> <laughs> would like to. Um, we should do one of those word clouds of like things we've talked about in all of our episodes. And to see where how big the word, you know, the more you talk about the word, the bigger it gets. See how big the word cough drop is. Well, I was feeling a little bad because I actually think we've talked about cough drops a lot. <laughs> but it's hard when it's your voice. Like, I've been thinking of, I am no singer, but I've been thinking, I was just telling Zach, like, man, this is kind of hard to have your voice I mean, recorded and Our voices are sniffly. gold now. Like, they're... they're famous worldwide so <laughs> right we got to protect the money makers but i've never like that's hard to get sick if you're a singer let alone a little little old podcaster okay anyway, anyway enough about cough here. drops one more time <laughs> one more episode hopefully next week we'll be done forever we're excited though this is episode 45 mormon chapters 8 through 9 and we're excited to dive in episode 45 yep So to start out with our study tip today, um, we wanted to share some practical ways to consistently be in the scriptures with your kids every day. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we, I think we even do this with our own personal scripture study, but we build up these expectations that we have of how our scripture study should look and how it should be and that it should be a certain amount of time or... Um, But I think what we need to do is just remember that small and simple things become great. And I really think this applies to teaching children and maybe even young children. Well, any age of of kids. Um, So we just wanted to share some practical ways that we have um, taught our kids Mm -hmm. scriptures. And so the first one um, that I thought of is... Just like you, we sometimes get our very tired and run down by the end of the night, and we just want to put our kids in bed as soon as possible. And on some night, or we're getting home late. I know that happens a lot when we're getting home late from an activity with family or we're out somewhere doing something. So often what we do is if we have a planned scripture that we have been memorizing throughout the month, we will together recite that scripture. And that's our scripture study that night. So we don't I would say pr- pretty much 99% of the time we don't cut cut it out completely. Mm-hmm. We do something. So ideally, let's see, last year, our last book that we studied as a family was the Book of Mormon. And often what Zach would do is usually paraphrase the chapter. I feel like we did this a lot. Mm-hmm. We would Because none of our kids, we now have a couple readers that are almost at that age where they can read. But we will kind of paraphrase what the chapter is about. And then maybe read a couple highlight verses and then ask some questions. So that was kind of the method that we took with the Book of Mormon last year. And I think as our kids grow, I think it's obviously important to maybe have them read a verse or two. But let's not set up these these walls or expectations that we do that say, I need to have my kids read each each five verses and we have to get through this chapter. I think setting up some 
realistic things like that. Or maybe having a backup, like we mentioned, with um, maybe a verse that you stick up on your kid's wall. That if you are on your wit's end and just want to put the kids to bed, that you just at least do something. Uh, we also found a, a lot of benefit. And I know different families do different things, but we we tried for years with you and I trying to do scripture study in the morning and it never worked for us. Mm. And I almost feel heretical saying that, but we just could never get morning scripture study working. And especially for our family, I wake up at 5, 5.30 and I'm out of the house. And so to wake up our kids that early was is, is difficult and we didn't feel would be a very good experience. And one of the things that we knew we wanted to have in our scripture study was more than getting through a block, more than reading a chapter, we wanted to have an experience where as often as possible, we wanted them to have an experience where they enjoyed spending time talking about the scriptures. And so we just... I think that's a good key, mm -hmm. that you are together talking about scriptures and making it enjoyable. So we decided we wanted to move it to the evening. We decided we did not want to just read to them. Now that was last year, this year we're on the Old Testament and we're actually reading a little bit more. It's a different translation other than the King James one that makes it a little bit easier for them to understand, but we're reading more. And as they grow older, we'll read more and more. But the focus of the scripture study is actually the questions that we ask that start this little mini discussion. And sometimes that is a a 10 minute discussion and it's awesome and I love it. Uh, sometimes we don't make it to the question because we their attention is shot and we just close the book and say, all right, that's it, we're praying. Uh-huh. But we do try and be consistent with some small thing. I, I tell my students all the time, I'd so much rather you read one minute a day than to read 30 minutes once a week. Even though reading 30 minutes once a week is going to get you more time in the scriptures, there's a benefit that comes in just a little bit of consistency. So if it's a 30-second thing that you can carve out in your family's evening, um, or in their morning or whatever it fits best for you. That's a great thing to do. Start with that and it'll grow. I think another something to that you could add in, like we mentioned the um, the quick way to do a memorized scripture, is also share something from your own personal study that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was reading this and I thought of you guys and I want to share this tonight. Don't be regimented to, if we aren't reading our 20 minutes in the Book of Mormon, then we can't study at all. Right. But really make it... Make it mold into what you're doing as a family. I think this is important too as we get ready for next year. There is a manual for the Come Follow Me curriculum that you'll be teaching at home to your families that is a suggestion for how you should do it. And I, there's, I have a big testimony of those that write these curricula because they're skilled, they spend time on them. And so it's not to be discarded or treated lightly. However, if you're a parent and you're teaching your children, remember that you're the one that's in charge and you get to decide how best to make this a meaningful, um, powerful experience for your children. You know them best. And so tailor that teaching to what fits your family. I think that's the one of the major principles that's going to govern our success next year is if, if families take gospel study into their own hands and fit it within the framework and the fabric of their own lives. And to consistently teach your children daily in the scriptures brings power. And that's it for our study tip. I think we could go on forever on this one. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, because I keep thinking of other things, but you got it. This is just maybe a little pep talk for you to just, just make it happen. You can do it. It can be fun and it can be easy. All right. If you want to be sad, then you open up to Mormon chapter eight. In Mormon chapter 8, Moroni takes over writing the story, and he tells you right at the beginning this. Verse 1, Behold, I, Moroni, do finish the record of my father Mormon. 
Behold, I have but few things to write, which things I have been commanded by my Father. And now it came to pass that after the great and tremendous battle at Camorra, that's the one we referenced last time where 230,000 Nephites died in addition to who knows how many Lamanites at the hill Camorra and the entire Nephite nation is wiped out. So he says that it came to pass that after that great and tremendous battle at Camorra, behold, the Nephites who had escaped into the country southward were hunted by the Lamanites until they were all destroyed. And my father also was killed by them. And I even remain alone to write the sad tale of the destruction of my people. I always find that really just chilling. You can almost sense Moroni's emotion as he's writing this. I don't know when he wrote it, but it seems to be somewhat fresh. And um, you can sense his emotion. You can sense um, his despair and... and um, you can't blame him at all for what he's facing. Later on in the chapter, uh, Moroni gives a second set of pretty chilling verses. This is verse 34 and 35. Behold, the Lord hath shown unto me great and marvelous things concerning that which must shortly come at that day when these things, meaning the things he's writing, shall come forth among you. Behold, I speak unto you as if you were present, and yet you are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know you're doing. So he has to record the sad things that are happening in his day. And then he looks forward, and the rest of chapter 8 is filled with the sad things that he sees in our day. Uh, you can read the verses, but just to give you a flavor, uh, this is verse 31. Yea, it shall come to pass in a day when there shall be great pollutions upon the face of the earth. There shall be murders and robbing and lying and deceivings and whoredoms and all manner of abominations when these, when there shall be many who will say, Do this or do that, and it mattereth not, for the Lord will uphold such at the last day. That sounds a lot like our day. Yeah. Do this, do that, and God will uphold you at the last day. Mm -hmm. uh, verse 36, I know that you do walk in the pride of your hearts. And there are none save a few only who do not lift themselves up into the pride of their hearts, under the wearing of very fine apparel and envyings and strifes and malice and persecutions and all manner of iniquities. And that's the description of just about any social media site that you go on, right? Envying, <laughs> strifes, persecutions, malices. Um, and then verse 39, Why do you adorn yourselves with that which hath no life, and yet suffer the hungry and the needy and the naked and the sick and the afflicted to pass by you? and notice them not. And you could read more verses, but those give you a sense that he's actually seeing our day, and he's, he describes it really appropriately, really effectively. And so amidst all of that, Moroni puts in here this one verse. This is verse 14. He says, I am the same who hideth up this record unto the Lord. The plates thereof are of no worth because of the commandment of the Lord. For he truly saith that no one shall have these plates to get gain. But the record thereof is of great worth. And I had the question as I read that just this time through of what is it about this chapter? And we'll get to chapter 9 in a minute. But what is it about chapter 8 and all of these pretty depressing details he records about his own day and about our day that is of such worth? In fact, I even asked you that question as we were preparing. What, what, what makes this chapter of such great worth? Why would a prophet put a chapter like this? especially his first chapter that he gets to write. Why is this the first chapter that he writes? I feel like this chapter is of great worth because 
it brings so much relevance. Hmm. He knows what it feels like. Um, he's been through it. I mean, I think we can say the same about Mormon too. I mean, him he wrote similar things in these last chapters and kind of making them, helping us to recognize the value that they were putting into these. Mm-hmm. They've been through it. They know what it's like to be lonely, to be depressed, to watch well, their entire people die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it gives it a, even more power that we that they worked and they brought these books to us. Yeah, there's these a, writings to us. There's a humanity there that because of their suffering, their their testimony, their witness, and as we'll talk about in the next chapter, their hope becomes all the brighter because they've been through all this. It's the same reason maybe we love the pioneers because they've been through all this and yet something kept them going. Yeah, and I feel like I think we've talked we've talked about joy in a few of our episodes and I think this is kind of a key to the joy is that we especially today we have this I think inflated idea of what what joy really is. Um and they tell us here they're experience these heartaches, hmm. this grief, this pain, but they're finding joy in the lasting and the eternal I, I guess joy what isn't they're the looking... absence of suffering. Right, it's exactly. The hope and through I, you suffering. know, we've had I feel like most conferences are about this in mm-hmm. some way. President Nelson's talked about it. Sister Bingham has, you know, gave a great talk on that. And I, f- I feel like that's this too. They feel the sorrow, but then they also have this passion and this joy for that of eternal worth in Jesus Christ. I think that's healthy to understand because as we were talking about this before, uh, one of the critiques that I've heard of modern prophets and apostles is that they too sometimes choose to talk about uh, hard things and shouldn't their message today just be something that's filled with happiness? Shouldn't they just talk about Jesus and how much we love him and how much he loves us? Why should they talk about marriage or the current debate over marriage, the definition of marriage? Why should they talk about um, struggles or pornography or depression or anxiety or why talk about these things why not just talk about happy things and part of it i think in what you're saying is one of them these are real people dealing with real stuff i was going to say humanity yeah like so let's let's show that we are aware and and that they've been through it you know when elder holland talks about depression and anxiety you get a sense that this is something that if he hasn't dealt with personally which he probably has he specifically mentioned right that that he's dealt with with his with Mm -hmm. his family and um, when President Nelson chooses to talk about marriage, it's something that's that's near and dear to him, and it's something that he is wrestling with. And so they're they're being real. But I think the second point too is uh, joy doesn't just come from ignoring the hard things in our life; it comes from acknowledging them and then seeing through them to something greater, which is what we're going to talk about in the next the, chapter: writing the ups and downs, the yeah. waves of, of life. So what we want to do is this: um, this is if you can imagine this. Um, there's lots of different ways, sorry for the tangent, that uh, a person can enjoy the water, if you will. You can wade in the water, you know, ankle deep, knee deep, thigh deep. You can go swimming in the water. You can go snorkeling, which allows you to dive a little bit. Uh, you can go scuba diving or you can go deep sea diving. And a friend of mine pointed this out to me that at each level, you need more pressure. If you're swimming on the surface of the water, your ears don't pop. But if you've ever tried to dive into the bottom of a swimming pool, 
you a lot of times your ears will pop. You have to pop your ears because the pressure gets too intense. Um, if you're scuba diving, they actually put you in a suit that's pressurized. At least the helmet is sometimes so that you can get down there. And if you've seen those deep sea divers, they're in a fully complete pressurized suit. So the deeper you get, the more you need pressurizing or pushing out against the pressure that's pushing in against you. And as I thought about what Moroni's writing, and especially thought about what he's seeing in our day, I think what he's trying to do is say, this is my world that I live in. It is, it's pressuresome. I have seen the destruction. I alone remain to write the sad tale of the destruction of my people. He's at the bottom of the ocean. And I think what he wants you to see is that he sees our day and recognizes that so many of us feel a lot like that. For whatever the cause is, that sometimes we feel like we're at the bottom of the ocean. And so he sets up for chapter 9, which is, and the later writings he's going to put in there of Ether and, and in Moroni, he sets up these chapters where even though he's going to address difficulties, he's going to talk about the entire destruction of the Jaredite nation in the book of Ether, he interlaces throughout that this sense of hope. And so what we want to do is look at chapter 9 and talk about the things that Moroni teaches that can pressurize our suits, that can help us to feel hope and happiness um, and, and keep us maybe alight in the worlds and the, and the difficulties that we sometimes deal with. Moroni describes it like this. This is chapter 9, verse 9. For do we not read that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And in him there is no variable, neither shadow of changing. And now if we have imagined up unto yourselves a God who doth vary, and in whom there is shadow of changing, then ye have imagined up unto yourselves a God who is not a God of miracles. So he sees a God of miracles, and he explains that a little further as we go on. In fact, that's my first point that I found in chapter 9. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Book of Mormon. I love when Book of Mormon authors tell you what it is they want you to see, when they're really clear. Way back at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, Nephi did the same thing where he said, I will show you a God who is merciful. It says First Nephi 1 verse 20. Well, in verse 11, Moroni does the same thing. Behold, I will show unto you a God of miracles, even the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And it's the same God who created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. Now, coming up in the book of Ether, you have some of the most incredible miracles recorded in Scripture, all condensed into a single pretty small book. And that's because Moroni wants to show you that God is a God of miracles. He can lead people across the ocean. He can touch stones and make them glow. He can do incredible things. And if he can do it for the Jaredites, a fallen people, then he can do it for you. And so I love that point. That's something that pressurizes my suit is I've come over the past couple of years to really gain a testimony that as much as we should focus on our own actions and our own efforts and our own faith, that we sometimes forget that there's a God on the other side that also has his actions and his efforts and his faith, and he's a God, and he's really, really good at things. And we believe in a God of miracles. And so, yes, there's there's totally a place for faith and for fasting and prayers in our life, but there's also a faith or a place for knowing that we're, we're praying to a God who can do incredible miracles. I like thinking of it as seeing God in the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Like just seeing him of of this, of he's a God of miracles, he's great and grand and can do so many things. I love that. I like specifically in verse 11, he mentions, the first miracle that he mentions is that he's a God who creates things. 
This is a God who likes to make things. He makes gardens. He makes people. He makes plants and animals and beautiful things. And if there's something in your life you want fixed or repaired or created, then you're talking to the right person because that's part of who he is. He's a creator. Verse 17, who shall say that it was not a miracle that by his word, the heaven and the earth should be. And by the power of his word, man was created of the dust of the earth. And by the power of his word, have miracles been wrought. God's word can do incredible miracles. You think of what the Savior did on the earth. He does all these healings with words. Well, God does the same thing for us. He can heal us with words. He can create families. He can create faith. He can create beauty where there wasn't. He can grow flowers out of volcanic landslides. He is a creator. He can create things here on earth, and he can create things in our own lives, and I love that about him. In the following verse, in verse 12, he says, Behold, he created Adam. By Adam came the fall of man, and because of the fall of man came Jesus Christ, even the Father and the Son, and because of Jesus Christ came the redemption of man. So he's a creator, like Zach talked about, and not only does, but he also is a mender. He's a redeemer of broken things. He had a plan to bring this Jesus Christ, this redeemer for us. Verse 13, and because of the redemption of man, which came by Jesus Christ, they are brought back into the presence of the Lord. Yea, this is wherein all men are redeemed, because the death of Christ bringeth to pass the resurrection, which bringeth to pass a redemption from an endless sleep, from which sleep all men shall be awakened by the power of God, when the trump shall sound, and they shall come forth, both small and great, and all shall stand before his bar, being redeemed and loosed from this eternal band of death, which death is a temporal death. If that's not a miracle, I mean, mm. even reading that almost gives me the chills of just the thought of who Jesus Christ is and what he is for us is a miracle. That, to me, that, that's pressure, that's pressurizes, I don't, how do you say that? That pressurizes, pressurizes my yeah. suit. But I like um, the storyline here too, that he created, I heard someone point this out once and I really like it, that uh, God created an Eden and I've thought, or I've heard people question, well, if if God needed man to fall or live in a fallen world where they could sin and have experience, why not just create that world in the first place? And I don't know if this is doctrine or not, but I like the thought that God can't create fallen things. He won't create fallen things. He only creates innocent, pure, perfect things. And so he creates an Eden. He creates a garden that's incredible. And then man... Uh, loses that garden through transgression. And so I like the storyline that God creates something that's beautiful and wonderful. We then, through transgression, lose it or ruin it or break it. And then God comes back and redeems that which we have broken to bring it back into his presence, to fix it. And the storyline, I think, in our place is not just a one-time break and one-time fix. It's repetitive. He, break, he makes it, we break it. He fixes it, we break it. He fixes it again, we break it. When and, we're using that power, mm-hmm. that miracle of, of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. From last October conference, this was one of those talks that maybe we've talked about in here before, or maybe I just read it so much it feels like we talked about it in here. But by Elder Hallstrom has the day of miracles ceased. And I feel like he's singing the same song here of what we're reading in these chapters. But he tells a story of, I'm pretty sure I told this. 
but he told the story of the man who miraculously survived a horrible a horrible fall from mountain from a climbing. mountain mountain climbing yeah and that we call that a miracle and you know he just talked about the question that we ask is you know there's a lot of miracles that happen but what about the miracles that don't come for people what about that and he goes on to to just beautifully talk about how we can deal with those questions that we all have, right? In understanding this life. That's where um, he quotes Elder Bednar, the, do you have the faith not to be healed? Right. Faith meaning trust in God and the greater miracles that he can do. Yeah, he says, do we have the faith not to be healed from our earthly afflictions so we might be healed eternally? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like this. He says at the end, and I feel like he's, again, just... He kind of echoes Moroni here, and we're actually going to have him, we're going to insert this audio here for you. Today, I testify of miracles. Being a child of God is a miracle. Receiving a body in his image and likeness is a miracle. The gift of a Savior is a miracle. The atonement of Jesus Christ is a miracle. The potential for eternal life is a miracle. While it is good to pray for and work for physical protection and healing during our mortal existence, our supreme focus should be on the spiritual miracles that are available to all of God's children. No matter our ethnicity, no matter our nationality, No matter what we have done, if we repent, no matter what may have been done to us, all of us have equal access to these miracles. We are living a miracle, and further miracles lie ahead. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You know, tonight in our scripture study with our kids, we played a little video clip from President Nelson a couple of years ago where he told the story of going to an aquarium and seeing all these colorful fish. And there's a, a worker there, and he says, who feeds all the fish? And she says, I do. And he, joking with her, says, have they ever thanked you? And she says, not yet. And uh, we were talking with our kids about that, of how sometimes we're fish. And we were trying to use it to teach a lesson about how they should be grateful about their parents a little bit more often. <laughs> But listening to Elder Hallstrom makes me think, you know, um, we're like that in the way we treat Heavenly Father. That Sometimes we want some of these immediate miracles and we forget that he is raining down miracles on us, creations and redemptions and forgivenesses and healings and hopes all over. And sometimes we forget just to look up and see the, the hand that's giving us these incredible miracles. Sometimes we're those fish. The God of miracles. Mm-hmm. Well, at the end of the chapter, Moroni says this in verse 20, The reason why he ceaseth to do miracles among the children of men is because they dwindle in unbelief and depart from the right way and know not the God in whom they should trust. Behold, I say unto you that whoso believeth in Christ, doubting nothing, whatsoever he shall ask the Father in the name of Christ, it shall be granted him. And this promise is unto all, even unto the ends of the earth. And he'll go on to qualify that promise by saying we have to ask for things that not to consume it upon our lust, and he gives some other qualifiers. 
But I love his conclusion that if if you are doubting miracles, if you're not seeing them happen, then maybe you need to spend more time with that God who gave you life, getting to know him better, whether that's through prayer or through scripture study or through worship or through service or through time with your family. Find a way to get to know God better. Look up. Take note of the miracles that he's raining down. If you feel like you're at the bottom of the ocean, and you may very well be, remember that you have a God that is continually pumping air into your suit to pressurize it and to keep it from crumpling. And you just need to remember those miracles. Remember that God of miracles so that you can walk along that ocean floor and eventually you'll be lifted out. That's my conviction. That's it for today. We will be back next week as we start into the book of Ether. Thank you for listening. We hope you have a lovely day.